Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. In today's episode, we have the opportunity to meet an education trailblazer. Like many educators, Elia Samuel began her career in the classroom, but a relatively short time later, she was tapped on the shoulder to assist Joe Biden's education transition team. This remarkable educator is now leading the Collaborative for Academic and Social-Emotional Learning, known as CASEL, as it navigates its way beyond the politics. As educators, we're all walking that political tightrope. Hi, Alia. Welcome to the Knowledge Hook podcast, and I'm so thrilled to have you here as my guest today. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. It is uh, such a pleasure to see you again, Alia, and uh, I've had the privilege of meeting you before. You are the uh, recently appointed CEO of Castle, and your journey and your point in your career right now has been absolutely remarkable. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, let us know some of those key stops along the way. Yeah, well, you know, as I... Um been traveling and meeting with various partners. It's been interesting to reflect back on my own career. And I will say there are some things and some moments that I'm definitely proud of. And the first is I I like to make sure people know I am an educator at heart. I started my career, hard to believe, 22 years ago as a special education teacher. And I taught special education and then went on to become an assistant principal. And for 10 years, I served in public schools and across two different states. So I had an opportunity to really look at very different education systems, but really thinking about the stories, the faces, remembering those experiences is really what drives so much of my voice and how I use my voice in all my roles as my career has grown, particularly in the policy space, it's always surprising to me how few policymakers, education policymakers or influencers actually have that public school experience. And so to be able to draw from that and bring those voices to the table is something that I take great pride in. The other thing that I would I, I like to share is that I am a parent now, and I am a parent of two sons elementary age. And Seeing the education world and experiencing it as a parent hits totally different than when you're a practitioner, because it is now your baby, your child that's going through the system. And so bringing the parent and human voice is also really important to me. When the pandemic started, my youngest son was a kindergartner and my oldest was in third grade and I was working full time. So talk about uh, like being able to say, hey, parents, I know what you're going through. Excuse my child as he just video bombed. You know, like I was experiencing it. And so bringing that parent lens is also really important to me. And then, you know, I've been so fortunate to work. I worked for the National Governors Association. I ran their education division. And so I had an opportunity to work with policymakers and governors and their staff 
from all across the U.S., from both sides of the aisle, rural, urban, tribal. And that national perspective was such an eye-opening and real experience. It's one thing to talk about what's happening in Milwaukee or Boise or Juneau, but it's very different when you've been boots on the ground. And I'm very fortunate. I've traveled to 48 of the 50 states and three of the five territories. I only have North and South Dakota left (laughs) on my list. You know, those three pieces, I recognized that in you right away when I met you, Alia. And, you know, it is unusual for someone in your position now to have that background of having been a 10-year public school teacher and principal a parent and having the opportunity to work with a national association. And I think that's what brings your strength to the table in the sense that you've got those three pieces that are so important. And uh, I think all of us wish that more of the policymakers had some of that background. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been an honor. You know, I really do believe that my profession allows me to fulfill my life's purpose And not a lot of people can say that. And so I'm just really blessed to love what I do and do what I love at the same time. Well, it's obvious when working with you, Alia, it's uh, it's amazing the work that you're doing. Not many educators can say that they've had the opportunity to influence education at the national level. And, you know, you talked about your work with the National Governors Association. You know, I've called this podcast Beyond the Politics it's very unusual for someone to have the opportunity to be working at that national level, as you called it, both sides of the aisle. What are some of the moments that really stick out in your mind with that type of work? So there's been a couple of experiences that I know I will take with me for a lifetime. And one that I'll share, it was actually my last, what would end up being my last year at, at the National Governors Association is every year we would hold an annual meeting for the governor's education policy advisors. And that was an opportunity to bring the education advisors from across governor's offices to talk about a whole slate of education issues and typically what was key at that time period every year, like what's the big thing or things that are happening across the education continuum. So early childhood, K-12, post-secondary, just holistically what is happening in education. Nice. And The beauty of my role was I had an opportunity to craft those meetings, to really sit down with my team and think through what are the topics that governors, education advisors need to know, have the content, have the experience to then be able to share with their governor to help influence policies in their state. And we decided there was a lot of conversation around two things, school safety, because this was shortly after the Parkland shooting. Mm. And then also equity. What does education equity mean? And so we decided to host our annual convening that year at Little Rock, Arkansas. And the reason why we chose Little Rock, Arkansas is because at the time, Governor Hutchinson, who is still the, the sitting governor in Arkansas, was one of our chairs at NGA. And so we were hosting it in his state. And also Little Rock was at the hub of the civil rights changes. And we went to, we actually contacted the principal at Little Rock at Central High School and asked if we could have a tour of the school because Central High School was this high school that was integrated. And we had an opportunity to have Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, one of the original Little Rock Nine, 
join us at the meeting to talk about what her experience was integrating schools 50, 60 years ago. And to be able to sit down and have governor's advisors from across all sides of the aisle in this historic city, listening to a woman's personal story of why equity in schools and integration and really equal access and opportunity was so paramount and why she as a 16-year-old young woman made that journey and that decision was just profound. And it was impactful, not only for me, but also for all of the education advisors across the room, because they were able to have a very different type of dialogue around what equity in education means and to take that trip in history, to be able to walk up the steps that National Guard had to protect these students it was just really an impactful moment. And there was, you know, one particular moment where at the end of the night, I had a chance to just talk to Minnie Jane. And she said to me, what gives me peace in that decision, because it was traumatic for a lot of them. She said, is seeing you be able to do what you do now. And it was such a full circle moment because of her sacrifice I'm now able to, as a woman of color, be able to have the roles and experiences that I have now. And so that was certainly a profound moment. And so many of the governor's advisors, and again, across the aisle, we're talking about blue state, red state, talk about, wow, I need to think about equity different and how they wanting to use the data in their state to help them understand where are the inequities, because it's bigger than race. It's about access. It's about opportunity. So what does it look like in some of the rural states or, or the states that have more rural students? What does it mean for low-income kids? What does it mean for kids with disabilities? And so to be able to know that I played a part in setting a stage that could open the door for that type of conversation is one that I look back on and I was like, you did well. <laughs> you did well. Alia, what an incredible experience. And, you know, as listeners are listening to this, you know, I think you created an opportunity for everyone to be able to connect to what's best for students in our systems. And it doesn't matter what political side that you're on. It's really about creating an opportunity where you can bring everybody together. And the experience is so profound, led by the leader of the group that you talked about, to be able to have that really profound experience where the politics falls off to the side and we really focus on what's good for our students and our families. And I, that is something that is so core to who I am is putting our kids first and our kids collectively, because at the end of the day, when they grow up, they're all going to coexist together. And so how do we think about our children now? Because they are the adults of the future. And I think it's just so important to keep them at the core of the conversations and not the politics and not the adults. We need to be focused on the kids. True that. Tell me a little bit, just before we move on, tell me a little bit about, you had an opportunity to work with uh, the Joe Biden transition to power on education. Tell us a tiny bit about that. And then in spite of an incredible opportunity, you decided to leave that uh, role and move into the CEO role with Castle. So tell us a, a little bit about what you were doing there. 
You know, it's interesting when you're just doing what you love and cranking out the work, you never know who notices you. And it was Christmas Eve and I got a call asking if I would consider a role with the Biden-Harris administration. And what a gift that was. You know, never in a million years could somebody have told me that this first generation American bilingual student who wasn't the best student at first, I will say, <laughs> I was not the best student, whose work could be recognized at that level. Just never in a million years. And the reason why I was asked to join the administration is because I had traveled and worked so closely with governors and really had an understanding of the national layout because one of the priorities was going to be to reopen the nation's schools. So, you know, I just want to date stamp when this happened, December, January, we're now going into the 2021 school year where 98% of our schools were still virtual still virtual. And so our charge was to not only be a part of what's called the landing team, which is the very first team that comes into the administration, but the number one goal, get schools open, support our educators, support our communities. What do we need to do to get kids back in school? And that is what called me to the work because remember, I'm at home with my own two who are in virtual school. And so I knew that they needed, and I could see it, particularly in my oldest son, the need to get back to school in a sense of normalcy. And that was coming from a two-parent home. You know, he had a home, he had everything he needed, but that social connection, that belonging, that need for relationships was showing up every day. And so it was a great honor to be a part of the landing team, which means we started before the secretary started, before the deputy secretary, before the undersecretary, before any of those cabinet officials were appointed, we were the first team in. And what an extraordinary experience to be able to serve in a public-facing role. My job was, I was the deputy assistant secretary for local, state, and national engagement. So whether it was governor's offices, to parent groups, to uh, school boards, thinking about and talking to them to understand what is it that you need? What are the supports you need to be able to safely and effectively open up your schools? And it was also the most grueling work schedule. I mean, we were working 12, 15 hour days because at this time there was no vaccine yet no approved vaccine. We were trying to also figure out what funds schools would need to be able to, I mean, there was just so much going on. And to be a part of that uh, process to really get the supports into schools to be able to open and was just an extraordinary experience. And I knew that it would not be a long-term role. Most political appointees serve a year or two. And I think serving that year coming you know, that transition year felt like two years. Um, but what pride I have of knowing that I was a part of history, of this moment of time that was so critical for education where every single spotlight was on what is happening in the U.S. context of education because what we do here impacts other countries. And by the time I left, we went from having 98% of the schools still virtual to 99% of schools completely open. And so 
it took some time and, but to actually see the wheels start to turn and get kids back into school and educators feel supported. It was just extraordinary. And there's still so much work to be done, but it, it was a moment in time that I, I'm very proud of to say that I served, I served our nation and I served our kids during a very critical time. When I think of, you know, the, the administrators that I know in schools and in school districts, uh, I think they certainly reflect on the kinds of things that you're talking about. Such big work and long, long hours and teachers trying to make sure they're supporting students while they're out of school and then transitioning them back in. And we know that the needs of students were great from both a well-being standpoint and a, and a learning standpoint and continue to be so such important work. Let's fast forward to Castle. So lots of the listeners, I'm sure, realize uh, Castle is probably one of the most formidable organizations in the area of SEL. They've been around for a few decades, and I think they coined the term social-emotional learning. What I always really appreciated with Castle is that they started off by saying the collaborative for academic and social-emotional learning. I think that that was a really important stance, just having that right in the name that it's not a walking away from the importance of, of academic skills. It's saying that there's an interaction between academic skills and social-emotional skills, and we need to be thinking about both of those together. How has the organization evolved over those last three decades? You know, I, as I think about Castle's history, you know, the first probably 10 years or so was really building the field and uh, starting to get the recognition, coin the phrase, the research. And then there was a good period in the middle where it was not just building the field, but then growing the field. And now we're in a place where there is such an opportunity to influence holistically how people think about social emotional learning and the role that it plays in academics. You know, with the increased funding for social emotional learning, with the increased need of social emotional learning, it has also increased the spotlight in which we are operating. And that has brought some critics. It has also brought a lot of questions. And it is now our job to really step up to that challenge and ensure high quality social emotional learning programs. And, and I, would, I would beg to say it's, of course, we are U.S. based in what's happening in the U.S., but the explosion of interest internationally because of the same needs or similar needs that we really need to be thinking about what is our broader influence and how can we help as many educators, school personnel, and students and families as we can on this SEL journey. And a big reason, a huge reason why I stepped down from my presidential post to come to Castle was in my last four months in my role, I visited nine or 10 different cities across the U.S. And in every single one, every single one, when you asked, how is reopening going? They would say, the needs of our kids and the needs of our educators from a social emotional learning and relationship perspective is more paramount than anything else. And that was my aha of this is where the need is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're seeing it. Our kids are still struggling with 
anxiety, transitioning back, managing the changing schedules of in-person, of virtual, in-person, of, you know, trying to recover from the academics that we have the school safety issue happening. Like there's so many complex layers to this. And at the root of it are these social emotional skills, not only for our kids, but for the adults who are supporting our kids. It's just, it's more critical now than ever. Yeah, for sure, Alia. And it's really interesting to see, you know, when we look back at the pandemic, obviously an incredibly traumatic and tragic time for many families. From an education system standpoint, you know, the need to pivot so quickly and our educators did an incredible job doing what they did to get things shifting to a virtual system by and large. When we see them coming back, when we see students coming back, when we see teachers coming back, when we see families making the adjustments of back to that in-school situation, such huge acknowledgement, the the place of well-being in school systems and in schools. I think intuitively we always knew that, but I think the pandemic has really allowed it to go up front and center. And it's an incredibly important time for CASEL because you've got such a background of the research and the understanding of how this can contribute that I think there's an openness to say, okay, now it's time to really make sure that we have these embedded in our systems. And you know, it is so true. I'm going to quote a superintendent that I had an opportunity to meet in Ohio, Dr. Dixon. And she said, you know, I've realized we can't academic our way out of this and we can't SEL our way out of this. We have to be able to do it both. And it is so true. It is so true. And you know, one of our focus areas for this year is school community family partnerships, because that at its core is how we are going to truly address the needs. You know, in the proverb, there's a proverb that says, you know, it, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, right now, the entire village has been under stress. Kids are stressed, parents are stressed, educators are stressed, like the layers. And so, how do we think about those partnerships across? every single layer, kids, parents, communities to work together as we continue to move through the recovery phase of this. Yeah, that's so true, Alia. And I, and I like the point that you made about the spotlight, you know, because there is more attention being paid in to social emotional learning, it forces you to do your very best work. I always thought the same as a superintendent in a, in a large school district. The politicians, the elected officials, the trustees, you know, when we brought reports forward with recommendations and trying to make policy changes, the fact that this was in the public eye, the fact that the trustees were so connected, it really did force us as an administrative team to do our very best work. We had to be able to bring reports forward that showed the research that said that this was going to make a difference. Really tight plans on how to make sure that we ensure quality, we ensure connectedness with the schools and with the families. It really did force us to do our best work. And yes, we know in the US that there's lots, in particular in the US, lots of questions about SEL. And I think collectively it will force us to do our best work to make sure that this is working well in schools and in education systems. And I think that is the strong points for Castle is that where we are now as a field with the research, with the evidence is very different than 30 years ago. 
And so how can we use the lessons and the research to be able to drive how we move forward? And I think to your point, I appreciate you talking about the use of data. If we look at the data, our kids are telling us loud and clear what's going on. We ended up this last school year with over 42% of our high schoolers still talking about anxiety, depression. Our chronic absenteeism rate was actually higher at the end of this school year than it was pre-pandemic or at the peak of the pandemic. And we know that absenteeism is a proxy for engagement. It's a proxy of so many other things. And so we need to really start looking at the data to say, if academic recovery is our end goal, what do we need to do to get there? Because just saying the doors are open and having kids present is not doing it. We need to be focusing on other things. And I do think, you know, I see it with my own kids. It's the power of their relationships at school. My youngest son, my third grader, my rising third grader, one of the things he loves to do when he goes to school is see his former first grade teacher, Mrs. Desmond. Oh, how he loves Mrs. Desmond. And he starts his day with going to her classroom for that hug, for that affirmation to go on to school or to his class. I think about the joy of learning and their excitement to go back. The things that have made my kids excited to go back is science and art. Those are the two things that they really enjoy. And so how do we get back to ensuring that kids have those strong relationships at school where they feel welcomed and loved and seen to then spark the excitement and the joy of learning again? And um, I think the data, the research, and the evidence all point to the need of the academics and the social-emotional learning skills together to get us there. I couldn't agree more, Alia. Let's move on and talk about the politics. Somehow, SEL has been politicized in the U.S. And where is that coming from? Well, the first thing, you know, from my perspective has been we have more people talking about it and using the term, but have very different mental models of what that term means. So because we're saying the term SEL there's so many different ways that people are talking about it that it is causing missteps. I think some of it is truly and genuinely not intentional. It's just how people have understood it. And then some of it is deliberate. And to create a sense of fear or concern amongst parents or students or educators. And so I think the first thing we need to do is get very clear on what we're talking about when we say social-emotional learning and its importance. And when we at Castle talk about social emotional learning, we're talking about the high quality evidence-based programs. We're not talking about a rendition or <laughs> what somebody wants to just kind of create and call it social emotional learning. That's not what we're talking about. And so I think we've got to get very clear on the definition and get to a shared mental model on what we mean when we say SEL or social emotional learning. And I think the second thing is elevating the tenets that have always been at the center and at the fabric of what social-emotional learning is. Parents, we know parents are kids' first teachers, and parents have always been foundational and a key to social-emotional learning. Two, thinking about 
the partnership between the parent and the school and having that strong relationship. These aren't new things when we talk about social emotional learning. So when we hear, oh, parents have the right to know about social emotional learning. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, parents should be helping to drive the school's conversation, the district's conversation, the community conversation on what are the right skills or programs for us in our community. And so we just need to be clear on the narrative because this is not something that's new. It's been at the fabric of what high quality SEL looks like. And I think too, really informing parents, uh, you know, as somebody who most of my friends are all, we're all rearing children around same ages, either older or younger in between. They often ask me, well, Leah, what exactly do you do? <laughs> and what exactly is social emotional learning? And to be able to talk to them and have dialogue, they're like, oh, yes. For example, Saturday, we were at my son's football tournament and I'm sitting with a group of moms and our team, they were losing. And her son, she said, I can feel it. He's starting to shut down. And she was like, this is what happens to him. Anytime he feels like he's going to lose or he's not doing a good job or he's disappointed somebody, he starts to shut down and, and he just can't come out of himself is what she said. And she was like, I wish we could get him to understand. It's okay. Just keep going. And I had to turn to her and I was like, that's social emotional learning skills. Like having a sense of self-awareness to say, whoa, I'm feeling frustrated and overwhelmed. You know what? It's okay. I'm going to manage how I feel and give it my best and to keep going on and persevere. I always thought, Alia, that SEL is a perfect vehicle to connect with parents. You know, when we look at the past and we, you know, we talked about mathematics education and things like that, and parents were very clear with us. They were overwhelmed. They weren't sure how they could be supporting their children. SEL is something, like you said, it's it's something that those skills are being developed in children from the time they're born right into early and mid-adulthood. And so those are things parents do want and play a role in helping children develop those skills. And it's a great common point of focus for how are we developing, helping students develop those skills in our schools and how are parents playing a role in that as well. It's a great joiner. It's a great connector for schools, homes, and parents. Absolutely. And to your point, parents are the ones guiding their teachers because they know their child to be able to say, you know, when my son or my daughter starts to behave like this, <laughs> these are things that are going on with them, or here's how they respond really well. Like, that's the type of dialogue that we want. And, and you know, I, I think about our educators, some who are like, wait a minute, are, are you asking me to do something else? And it's like, no, really, SEL has been at the foundation of even good teaching. And so it's more so putting words and clear and deliberate actions to what is innate for so many educators and even parents. We just haven't been able to name it in the ways that we are now. Exactly. It's a great opportunity to come together. And uh, Alia, you're such a, a wealth of knowledge in this area. And I'd love the listeners to have an opportunity to hear some of your observations 
are you seeing strong examples of whole system SEL implementation? You know, I've been fortunate, I've been able to travel with you globally and see some things happening around the world, but lots of amazing things happening in the US and Canada as well. Can you describe a couple of situations where you're really seeing that whole system approach as opposed to individual teachers and schools doing things? Well, one that comes to mind is in El Paso, for example, we are seeing the district really approach community voice in a very different way. And they have created an advisory council, essentially, of families and community members to help them think through and influence what social emotional learning looks like and how they talk about it within their own community. We also are seeing districts really start to utilize and think through the youth voice and how do they engage the youth voice to really help them think through the supports that are needed, how they want to talk about SEL, how they'd like to use their own sense of agency to help drive decisions within their not only school, but district. Thinking about the Nashville superintendent who actually has two powerful young high school students who are on the school board and how they helped really inform the decision. And so I do think that there are some great examples that are happening. And um, I think as the, the demand continues to increase, being able to elevate those examples to talk about a systemic approach to, to social emotional learning is really going to be critical to changing the education system. What you've pointed out, Alia, is in both of those examples, is the need for us to have a clear understanding of what SEL and quality SEL is systematically, but then systems making it their own, having processes in place to engage in the discussion so that those communities feel like it's not something that's being dumped on them, but that they take the research base and, and they have those broad parameters but they make it their own through student voice, through community voice, and they describe how they're going to have that look in their communities. I think that's the magic ticket. High quality at the system level, so we have a common understanding, but local initiatives to make it their own. And that has also been foundational to high quality social emotional learning programs is ensuring community voice, ensuring that local decision making and the need for it. And I, you know, going back to your question about the politics and the misinformation, like there's been this, you know, sayings of, of you know, SEL takes the rights away when I actually know it, it opens the doors and bring more voices to the table. Absolutely. It brings the parents and the community into our schools. It doesn't push them. It doesn't replace them. And it certainly doesn't push them out. It's the exact opposite. Like you said, it's bringing them into our schools and something where, Parents do feel very comfortable talking about, you know, trying to help build those social and emotional skills with their children. They don't necessarily use that phraseology, but when we really break it down and we talk about, you know, your child having a sense of who they are and the community that they came from and confidence and being able to celebrate their uniqueness as individuals and how do they build relationships with other students, with other adults, when we break it down into that type of language, I think parents say, 
Yes, absolutely. Those are the kinds of things that as parents we're working on all the time. And we know that when there's a partnership between things happening at home and things happening at school, that's where our children really start to flourish. So it's a great initiative that you're working on. I'm so thrilled that you and Castle are are doing that important work. Thank you. You know, all the while we're talking about education right now. Yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, our kids of today are adults of tomorrow. We are hearing loud and clear from the workforce the need for these skills. Ironically, it was just maybe two weeks ago, Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of Chase, put out an article talking about the needs of the workforce right now. And here's a Fortune 500 CEO talking about soft skills. He didn't use the term SDL. He used the term soft skills. In the article, he taught is, is essentially talking about how Yes, he can easily hire for the tech skills, but that's not what he needs. What he needs are employees who can think through really difficult, complex problems, who can work collaboratively within teams and across teams. Sound decision-making, especially in the leadership roles, those are all SEL skills. And so here we have employers talking about the ease of hiring for the academic skills, but not the soft skills, which is really what makes a good employee. When you look at typical reasons for termination, they're not the tech skills of not knowing how to operate Word or email or, you know, that's not the issue. Typically, they don't work well with others. They are not punctual. Like, what we need to really start thinking about these skills across the lifespan. Alia, that is a perfect way of ending off this conversation because it's such a hopeful piece. Agreed 100%. We've got employers now that are really talking about the importance of, they call them soft skills, that's great. And knowing that they are encouraging that is really helpful for school systems because it gives us a rationale. Every parent wants their child to be able to go into the workforce and find a job that's going to fulfill their passions and that they'll have success in, etc. And to be able to share that with parents and be able to describe how we're helping our students develop those skills that will make them successful, not only in school, but in the workplace and in their communities and in life in general, it's a great way of moving things forward. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I will say I learned so much from my children. You know, we talked about the workforce, but even on the entrepreneurial side, like my kids keep coming to me with lists of YouTubers who are kids, like who made these billions of dollars off of YouTube. And even if we talk about from an entrepreneurial perspective, the same skills apply. You have to be able to persist. You have to be able to think through problems. You have to be able to imagine what's coming ahead and actually then be able to take concrete steps to achieve that goal. And we have so many young people who are discovering businesses that I would have never thought to do. And so whether it is life and community success, relationship success, whether it is typical workforce track success or an entrepreneurial mindset, the same skills apply. 
Alia, thank you so much for spending time with us today. You have enlightened all of us, and we have left us off in a very, very hopeful stance. I look forward to seeing what Castle is doing in the future, and uh, we will have another conversation with you as things progress. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks to Alia for sharing her extraordinary story with us, from teacher in the classroom to member of Joe Biden's transition team for education. Alia is well prepared to take on the politicized world of education in the United States. Through her work as CEO of CASEL, Alia will continue to provide the guidance and support to frontline educators who are there to ensure that their students develop the academic and social-emotional skills to thrive in a complex world. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may be interested in another podcast with Dr. Mark Greenberg called Cultivating Educator Resilience and Wellbeing. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.